happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 188, coming to you on August the 26th, 2020. We had to cancel last week's show because one of about six or seven internet interruptions from the past 10 days happened to take place on Wednesday night. And I know there was, you know, just a cast of thousands that were were uh, desperate because you had to go two weeks without, you know, checking on Jason's haircut and seeing if he had gotten a COVID haircut and he is not. So welcome to Peggy, who I see is in our chat room. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the ostensibly technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School. But in all actuality, I'm a full-time teacher this year teaching two sections of Spanish and uh, two sections of media and digital literacy for fifth and sixth graders. And yeah, I've been enjoying it. It is fun learning all about comprehensible input pedagogy. But we're not here to talk about that. And I'm joined as always by my Saturday Night Fever fan who has changed his background just in time for the start of the show. Someone who is trying to, I think, enter the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest, uh, at least uh, Missoula resident, not having a haircut during the COVID, Jason Neifer. Well, I got to say, um, Missoula is well known for its long hair folks. So perhaps I will not necessarily you know, get into the Hall of Fame here. But yes, I, um, as I've mentioned before on the podcast, um, I am probably stuck in my home for the foreseeable future. I did get an opportunity to go camping this past weekend, so I was out into Mother Nature, which was wonderful. Um, but I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located here on the University of Montana campus in Missoula. Um, although I have to say one of the things we have talked about in the past is kind of the Montana fire report. And unfortunately, fires have entered western Montana. So there's a, fi- there's a fire southwest of us in Dillon, Montana. It's about 7,000 acres. And it's been pretty smoky here the last, oh, I don't know, four or five days, although it's supposed to clear up. But like Wes said, we're not here to talk about us, or at least not directly in that context. This is the EdTech Situation Room, a weekly podcast where we take a look at the tech news and kind of shoot it through an educational lens. And obviously technology taking center stage in so many conversations across the United States regarding distance learning, remote teaching, remote learning. Um, obviously, technology has a real impact on delivery of flexible learning if you're looking for blended learning environments. And that's a little bit about what we hope to talk about tonight. So, Wes, I know that you did a lion's share of link updating tonight. So is there any particular place you think we should start? Well, yes, I'm actually putting in a link as uh, we speak here. Um, the links, if we didn't mention that already, are at edtechsr.com slash links. And undoubtedly, especially since we have two weeks of links to talk about and uh, news to cover, which we won't cover at all, of course, uh, there's a lot that we won't get to. But I want to go to one. I just put in a new category. So our categories tonight are... COVID-19, Google, Apple, Android, Microsoft, Equity, Chrome OS, Firefox, Media Literacy, Tech Correction, and the new one I just put in, I did China Surveillance. So this is a New York Times article from yesterday, from August 25th, and the title is, With Hacks and Cameras, Beijing's Electronic Dragnet Closes on Hong Kong. Wow. Um, We have talked on the show numerous times about the ways in which the dystopian and, you know, 1984, George Orwellish, Orwellian uh, forecast for the ways in which surveillance technology are, is going to just become ubiquitous is really becoming a reality in China. And Hong Kong, um, as, as you may know, I actually had a chance to visit there um, probably back in like 2010. Hong Kong has had a unique relationship with China because it was you know, controlled as a colony of England for years of Great Britain. And then it was turned over in 1999. There were all kinds of fears that it was going to just be subsumed, but they've been allowed to have uh, considerable independence and really function as a different um, sovereign sovereign nation. Uh, but they are beholden to China. Well, there's a new national security law that the article states has really emboldened the Chinese police The article opens with a story of a a man who was accused of an Internet crime, which was posting on Facebook 
allegedly that China needed that Hong Kong needed to seek its independence from China. The police arrested him in a stairwell. His face was forced into looking at his phone. Um, he was able to close his eyes and scrunch his face and defeat the, the face uh, facial recognition technology. They went to his house, seized another phone, forced him to put his finger on his phone. But um, he had taken off the fingerprint recognition and he said, told, you know, said he had forgotten his passwords Crazy, crazy that these kinds of things are happening today. There's a link to a video that an activist posted letting folks know about two-step verification. They talked about the ways in which many activists and just citizens of Hong Kong have migrated to signal and to encrypted uh, messaging. And, pro and one of the most interesting, and uh, interesting is not even the right word, troubling um, parts of this is this idea that we no longer, I don't know, we never really had because we've always had North Korea, you know, Iran, uh, different countries that have uh, substantially censored the web and, and limited people's access. But laws, right, are being applied to police actions and things like that. Yahoo changed their terms of service in a sort of very adept uh, kind of Aikido-like way so that uh, folks who are using Yahoo services are, according to their terms of service, subject to U.S. law, not China, Chinese law. But the ways in which the government of China and, and the government of Hong Kong are trying to run repshod over privacy, over people's data, and then the way in which companies are having to look at changing things like terms of service to be able to protect users, in some cases, not just in Hong Kong or mainland China, but even in other places. A very, very troubling article and so important, right? Because freedoms, there, there are big differences between uh, nations and, and some of those things are cultural, but the values that are defining governments, uh, let's say, are substantially different. And we certainly see that here. And so I think what we stand for in the United States and the West in terms of freedom, in terms of freedom of access, in terms of privacy, we have a long way to go with that. You know, Europe has their general directive on, on privacy regulation, the GDPR, and we, we have a long way to go too for the United States. So, Jason, with that in mind, uh, are you considering a relocation to Hong Kong, perhaps, and just being able to remotely work there? Because I hear the weather's great and there's not a fire danger this time of year. Uh, that's a great question. And I, so I'm, I'm a history guy, right? I taught history. I'm very interested in, in uh, this particular area because of its previous relationship with its you know, previous European masters. But... Like, it's just really scary to me, this notion of, and, and it's a long story that I don't care to repeat tonight. I, I'm actually helping a family member out right now with a, um, with a, with a legal situation that was actually kind of dominated by evening. But, um, the, the bottom line is, is that there's just so many things that are connected to your digital self that, I mean, 20 years ago would have been, way out there. Right. And, 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 and to be clear, Dr. Fryer was talking about digital footprints before anyone knew what the heck that term meant. So uh, it's not anything really new, but the bottom line is, is that we connect into the world that in a way that our, our most sensitive data is really pretty accessible anywhere. And now usually at tech folks, uh, both of us included, we usually pitch that as a great thing, right? Like the, the bottom line is, is that I have my phone and I tend to prefer, uh, you know, uh, budget Android phones is, is kind of my shtick is using that. This is a, a, a beautiful phone that I can literally access my world on. I can buy and sell stocks on here. I can check my retirement account on here. Um, I can, can send money. Um, I can look at health records. I can share. I literally have apps on my phone that share direct health information with healthcare providers as, as part of my larger health plan. It's an extraordinarily powerful thing. It also means that that device is access to everything that is close and dear and personal to me. Everything from the way I might refer to my wife in a kind and loving way via a text message to what my uh, current blood sugar is all legitimately accessible on my phone. And like when I, when I'm hearing you talk about the story and then have uh, the bit I've read here, it is deeply troubling that we just don't have, uh, and I would say the United States doesn't really have protections on this either. Fingerprints are an interesting example to something. Um, a couple of years ago when there was biometrics available, one of the things that's super interesting about the fingerprint is that if you've got a pin on your phone, there is no law enforcement 
uh, uh, ability to force you to give a pin over it. And plus, like, what are they going to do, right? Are they going to cut your brain open to look for it? No, they can't. But fingerprints are actually protected legal strategies for confirming identity, right? And so they can compel you to give a fingerprint over. Now, the courts have debated quite aggressively about whether or not that means they can use your fingerprint in a device to unlock it or not. But, you know, this is obviously about uh, an authoritarian country in, in China and their influence in Hong Kong. But it isn't that far-fetched to say that the United States may need enhanced protections related to this digital information that's just just not otherwise there. And, you know, it connects with past themes we've talked about on the show, whether it relates to the fact that your face is now an identifying mark with so many police departments across the United States using facial recognition technology, the protests of which obviously there's been an incredible number of and even a fire up and protest in Wisconsin in the last 72 hours due to the situation there. Um, yeah, it, it, it requires a lot of thought. It requires a lot of savvy. And I'll just plainly state, we don't talk about this enough in schools, right? I'm sure these are conversations that happen in government courses, which, by the way, for those of you that aren't social studies teachers, teaching government is a lot of fun precisely because of these issues. You can really get kids engaged pretty quickly with, with current events in regards to this. But I think this really matters everywhere, right? And in, 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 in almost every curriculum, there's, there's a hook here. But yeah, very troubling article and something that, um, um, yes, I don't think Hong Kong would be on my, my relocation list. Yeah. I mean, I had seriously looked and Shelly and I have, have thought at different, different stages of life. Yeah. In terms of relocating and international. And at one point, I mean, you know, thinking about China, but, uh, man, I'm telling you, the, the, the ways in which surveillance is being deployed there, um, you know, it's just we we need to be talking about um, what what surveillance and artificial intelligence. And I'll mention something in the Geek of the Week that kind of relates to this, but the ethics of it, you know, and what kinds of guidelines, and boundaries uh, do we want to try and have? And we may or may not be able to to have those. But, you know, we need to aspirationally be talking about values and ethics and um, you know, it certainly is driven home when you hear stories like this about Hong Kong. So where would you like to go next, Dr. Neifer? Well, there's a really interesting thought piece uh, last week in about Chromebooks that I want to talk about. And I think it actually has a lot to do with, with schools. So uh, about Chromebooks, August 14th, this is Kevin Tofel's Chromebook blog. And he asked a, a pretty interesting question with Android, Linux, and now Windows 10 support on Chromebooks. Have Chromebooks lost their simplicity? And I, and I got to say, I am um, so I'm a Chromebook guy. I love them. It's it's really something that that I enjoy a lot. Um, I've recommended them to my organization. It is now our remote worker strategy. From when we have part time employees that work with us, they're so easy to manage. And I feel like it's such a misleadingly simple platform that people oftentimes underestimate how much you can get done. And one of the things I take a lot of pride in is that I, I think of myself as an advanced tech savvy user and I can do 100% of everything I need to do on a Chromebook, period, end of story, right? Now, ever since Chromebooks were initially released in 2010 as a beta product, um, and the first Chromebook, the CR48, which was a free Chromebook that, that Google gave out to a lot of experimenters across the United States. The point of the Chromebook in 2010 was that it was web-based only, right? And in 2010, that's kind of hard, right? Google Docs and Drives didn't really exist yet. Uh, there was cloud-based stuff, but it wasn't that easy to use and wasn't as integrated. Microsoft had no offerings in the cloud. And as a concept, it was difficult to, to utilize. But 10 years later, there's just nothing, in my humble opinion, that, you know, short of highly specialized industry applications, and I think of AutoCAD as, as an example of that, right, that there's just nothing you can't do on a Chromebook because it is a very powerful platform that utilizes the web, which has become extremely powerful in the last decade. But Chromebooks have evolved over time, and initially Android apps were were integrated into the platform, so you can now uh, 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 utilize Android apps. Um, 
then you can install both a full install of Linux and then individual Linux applications into the operating system. And then when they talk about Windows 10, you can theoretically install uh, a Chromebook or Windows 10 on a Chromebook. But if you're using one of the 32 gigabyte Chromebooks, it, it's, it's terrible, right? It just, it wouldn't make any sense to do so. Um, but the, the point that I think Kevin. Wait a second. If you have 32, 32 gigs of RAM, it's not going to be? No, it's 32 gigs of storage space. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Like if you're installing Windows on the side of Chrome OS. Right. And, you know, and you, if you can get it to install on 32 gigs, right? That was troublesome three or four years ago, probably even more so now. Like it, it, the bottom line is, is that if you're, you know, you're operating four operating systems on one machine to cobble together functionality, has it lost that beautiful simplicity? And, and I have to say, in general, my answer to that is yes. Um, that I think we lose sight sometimes in our kind of desperation to make the Chromebook into something that seems more familiar to us as end users, right? That you can install software and with that software, you can do things with that software as opposed to staying entirely on the web. And I've been experimenting with something lately. Um, I have a, a Pixelbook slate. That's the tablet form factor. And I don't have the tablet with me right now for a reason I'll talk about in a second. But, like, this is the keyboard cover that comes. It's going to be weird with my background. Um, this is the keyboard cover that, that Google will sell you. And it's it's a perfectly... Uh, acceptable Chromebook. It's fast. And it's got a nice screen. It's got a four by three aspect ratio, which is, is, is nice to use on, on a laptop. But recently I've purchased a case for the Slate tablet and I've been using it as a tablet as opposed to a Chromebook. So I have a big 12 inch screen tablet, kind of like an iPad Pro um, that I can use at home. And so it's been a lot of Android apps because when I'm in a tablet form factor, the app works really great, right? But I have to say, it's not great. And a lot of Android apps on there are a lot wonkier than it feels like they should be based on how long Android apps have been a thing on Chrome OS. And so I guess for me, as a kind of pro end user that's super into Chromebooks, I have to agree with with, with Kevin's basic premise that all this ability to install this extra cruft is 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 nice. I mean, it can solve some individual problems, but I think the, the the most powerful thing you can do with a Chromebook is just use the web, right? Utilize the power of the web to do extraordinary things. Now, Wes, I know there are Chromebooks in your house. I know there are Chromebooks in your classroom. Um, I, I I know that you use them in that way. You're also someone that carries around a Mac with you regularly. Do you have any thoughts about Kevin's premise here about whether the simplicity of the Chromebook is really its magic? I would agree 100%. I was actually at CVS recently and the, the guy had to reboot their, um, their, uh, you know, checkout machine. And I was like, and it was going to take like five minutes. I was like, Hey, you're not running, you're not boot, rebooting in eight seconds with Chrome, are you? And he's like, is that what it does? I was like, yeah. I mean, in 2011, I, I touched my first Chromebook and when I saw that it would boot up fully in eight seconds, I was like, this thing is a game changer. So it is, I think, you know, we're, 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 we're seeing the maturity, like we've said, of the web web technologies and, you know, processors and speed and everything else. But, yeah, the ability to be productive and do the bulk of your work, you know, on a device like this, which, yeah, was was reengineered from the ground up as a new OS to be secure, to be fast. Um, so all of my fifth graders that I'm teaching this year have Chromebooks that are school provided and our sixth graders, hopefully next week, because the iPad shipped last week. <clears throat> are all going to have um, brand new iPad seventh generation uh, with keyboard and Logitech stylus, blah, blah, blah. Um, I love my kids being able to use the Chromebooks, you know, long battery life, super fast. We're able to do all kinds of great things with them, you know, using Google classroom, using seesaw, all other kinds of tools. So I think generally when Kevin Toffel speaks, people should listen. So yeah, he's a, smart, he's a smart guy. And I think he's a piece right on target with that. Well, and if you're a teacher in a classroom and feel limited by your Chromebook, pull in some experts, right? I mean, t- t- uh, tweet Wes and I. We're happy to help out with that. But, I mean, there is there has been some limitations on the Chrome operating system from the standpoint of 
that schools are a lot more sensitive about creating accounts, students creating accounts and external systems due to privacy and, and the data issues. That's true. But chances are you can work with your IT folks to come up with a, a meaningful set of tools, including perhaps ones that you that you actually license and, 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 and have kids log into. But the bottom line is you can do a good percentage of anything productively you would need to do in Google Docs. Um, or I'm sorry, in Google Drive, the Drive Suite, right? Uh, and if you haven't, a, a shout out to, um, and I cannot believe I can't remember his name, um, Classy Graphics Guy. Uh, Tony Vincent. Yeah, Tony Vincent. Shout out to Tony Vincent. Uh, if you really want to learn how to use uh, uh, or to create amazing looking things, his classy graphics class, which I don't have the time to 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 dedicate to make it worth the money for me right now. If I did have the time, I would take that in a hot second because he teaches you how to squeeze juice out of Google drawings. That's amazing with really uh, what appears to be extraordinarily um, awesome uh, kind of graphic design uh, practices. But you can do that in the free in in free Google drawings. Right? It's phenomenal. Like, it yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. It, having having used web-based uh, tools, I, I haven't owned Photoshop. Well, actually, I could I could have it today because we've licensed Creative Cloud, yada, yada. But, I mean, it is – I do over 90% of all my graphic collages now straight in Google Draw. It's fantastic, and it, it, can, it can do everything that I need. Yep, absolutely. And, and by the way, and if you need recommendations on apps to be able to do stuff, like reach out to the, um, uh, reach out to your PLN, right? Or reach out to people on Twitter. I mean, like I talk about Canva. Um, Canva is hands down the best graphic suite I've ever used. And I've got Photoshop on my computer. Really? I have that license wow. because it work. And I would prefer to use Canva. The only thing Canva doesn't do for me is work on vector graphics. So if I'm working on logos and there are web-based vector editors and they're, they're pretty terrible, at some point they'll resolve that. But other than vector graphics, I don't need to use uh, uh, I don't need to use a desktop computer. I can use the, the slimmed down Chrome OS. And at home, I'm not even using Chrome, o, uh, Chrome OS. I'm using Cloud Ready on a desktop machine that's a recycled desktop machine. It's an eight-year-old workstation that has a pretty beefy processor and a huge amount of RAM. But, like, I don't, I don't even bother with the full Chrome OS, which has Android apps and Linux applications. I just use the scaled-back Cloud Ready, and it's perfect. And I can get pretty much everything I need to do, being a guy that helps run a digital school, done there. Absolutely. I need to check out Canva a little more. We just had a teacher asking me about poster making, and I was recommending, I mean, Adobe Spark has their Adobe Spark page, but mentioned Canva. But I, I haven't really played with Canva in a while. Free for schools now. So Canva? you can set it, yeah, pro version, completely free for schools. You have to, uh, I think you can sign up as a teacher and do sub accounts for kids or some other mess like that. But I think you can also set up a, like, a, a, like you can get it signed onto your domain and get kids accessed it that way. And unbelievably powerful. And, and uh, every time I go in there, they have a new feature and I do do a quite, uh, quite a bit of, of graphics work. Part of my day job, a lot of my side gigs require uh, some graphics work. I don't need anything else other than Canva. Canva's amazing. Awesome. Hey, we've had a bit of a lively chat here uh, with Peggy uh, talking iPhones. And uh, just another shout-out to Swappa. Uh, Peggy is, is shopping phones, um, so and she's pretty dedicated to the iPhone world. So I don't know that Jason's going to get to you know, bring her over to the Android world. But uh, we've done a number of upgrades in our family. Um, my dad actually was ready. And rather than get a new iPhone SE, which does have the latest A13 Bionic processor from Apple, which is the same as in the iPhone 11 Pro, it's a great processor, um, he just went with an iPhone 8, and that's what I have as well. That has an A11, but it's pretty snappy. I don't really think I'm suffering in any way. Um, both the iPhone 8 and the SE have the, the old form factor with the physical button, you know, Apple, um, with, uh, the iPhone 11 and XR line has dropped those. So certainly you can drop a lot of cash on computers, on smartphones, but the reality is in order to be productive and effective, you don't actually need to have the latest and the greatest. Um, probably a lot of listeners of this podcast enjoy. And of course I have when I sometimes I've had an opportunity to do that, but we don't have to have the latest and the greatest. So Great. All right. Okay, where to now, sir? Let's see. Why don't we go, let's go to a kind of a, a positive COVID article, which may seem like a, you know, 
contradiction in terms, but this is pretty neat. Um, so f- there's a teacher in Missouri that has created a database of COVID-19 related school closings. Why do I say this is positive? Well, it's just cool that a teacher has done this with Google Sheets. Okay. This is not something that the, the state or the feds or somebody was, was actually embarking upon. And so this is an article from the Springfield News Leader on uh, August the 15th. Teacher creates national database of COVID-19 related school closings, cases and deaths. Um, of course, this is not not a positive topic in terms of the fact that we have so many and that all of this isn't necessarily being tracked. But the governor of Missouri actually gave this teacher a shout out, um, Alicia Morris, who teaches theater in Kansas's Olathe School District. Was scouring the Internet for news reports about COVID-19 issues related or surrounding K-12 school closings. And she became overwhelmed with information and she was seeing the articles uh, logged in and, um, oh, okay. Yeah. She, she just started to put it in a Google spreadsheet and shared it with colleagues and got a great response. So it's basically crowdsourcing using Google sheets. And, um, you know, it's pretty cool when the governor of your state, uh, this was governor Laura Kelly says, what a great contribution in the fight against COVID-19 from Olathe school districts, Alicia Morris and her impressive database of local COVID-19 related school closings and cases. Of course, on a technical note, some of us may note that the governor is not exactly right because Go- Google Sheets is not a database, but it is a great table of information. In fact, in many cases, in my work as well, you know, it's kind of replaced databases. Back in the day, I used to use FileMaker Pro and do all kinds of fancy things with a true relational database. But anyway, that is a that's a great article. And then this was also covered by The Hill um, on the 17th of August and says, you know, Kansas school teacher created a database of 700 schools reporting coronavirus. I do think it's pretty interesting. And that's again, I'm, I use, I'm using that word a lot when it's not the appropriate word. Um, things are not being tracked in the same way by different federal agencies. Uh, some states are choosing not to collect statistics on certain kinds of things. So Jason, what's the, the COVID-19 update from Montana from, from your vantage point in terms of the situation and any, any, any big changes in the last two weeks since we last talked? The, so two things. First, it appears that this database has been moved off of Google Sheets and now has been taken on as an NEA project, which let's have a moment of, you know, school teacher starts to track information and then the National Teachers Association <laughs> takes that over, right? So that's a, a, like even a step further, although it doesn't appear that this is being necessarily um, updated quite yet like it was in the spreadsheet, but, um, uh, Montana is, is, uh, we start school a little later than, than, um, your part of the world. So we had some districts that were in two weeks ago. We have some districts that won't start until the second week of September. So there's some time here. Um, I, uh, so we had a small school in southeastern Montana that had a COVID case and shut down for 48 hours to clean the school building. I believe they went back in tomorrow. Um, we are keeping an eye out right now by we, I mean, you know, kind of viewers of this, I think keep an eye out. Uh, there was a, a fair, a, a county fair in Northwestern Montana, um, over the weekend. It was four days. It made national news media because some pictures of a rodeo, uh, that was there seemed to, um, suggest that a lot of people there were neither socially distanced or masked. There's some confusion now about how accurate the, the vantage point of that picture is, but, that the district in that county, the, the major district in that county went back to school on Monday. So the day after the, the rodeo was over with. So, I mean, to the casual observer, it could be an opportunity for, for, you know, kind of a, a COVID spread. Um, I, you know, most schools, actually no school started remote here. So uh, not a single school that I know of in the state of Montana started remote. And in fact, most schools, some, some delayed a week or two, um, many larger schools have chosen to stand up their own online school so that students could, if they chose to, could take 100% of their courses online. But it's been a variety of responses here. Um, and Montana is very much a local control state. Uh, we're often described as a frontier state um, and also a very rural state. And local control is very much a tradition of Montana education, but nothing major to report yet. And I hope that stays the case. I, you know, a lot of teachers had a lot of trepidation here about going back. We'll see what it looks like soon. 
Yeah, I won't uh, go into excruciating detail, but but a week ago Friday we went back. So last week was our first full week back face to face with kids, and we've definitely reduced class sizes even further. And you know, masks for everybody at all times. I heard a troubling NPR local article in Oklahoma saying that of the schools that have gone back, like something something like thirty percent or a third were not requiring students to wear masks in class uh, here in Oklahoma. And so anyway, it just um, it's a pretty amazing situation, an unprecedented pandemic, um, and we're just continuing to hope that you know things are gonna gonna go well, and we're gonna continue to be able to stay in session. But hey, the flu shots are out. You know, I was at CVS, and this is the normal time when the flu shots come out, and uh, it's really interesting as far as you know what's happening in colleges and the diverse reactions that different folks are having. Uh, someone that we know well uh, just had a couple. Um, folks test and their sorority, uh, but they were both negative. And anyway, the implications that this has for small groups, um, our daughter has said at her university that there's a number of classes that have just had to go remote because somebody in the class who was attending face-to-face tested positive, And then with contact tracing, you know, that entire class is required to not be meeting face-to-face anymore. So it remains a great time to have digital teaching and learning skills and to be able to find ways to, to share those with others. And I would also say it's an important time to maintain some boundaries and to be able to, um, you know, make sure that we're not killing ourselves um, in terms of, of workload, because that is entirely possible. Um, Peggy's asking uh, to hear a little more about how it's going as far as with students and the modifications we're doing. Um, you know, uh, the, the largest class I have is 12 students. Uh, we're having lunch. Basically, for the most part, everyone's eating outside. That's working right now, <laughs> you know, as far as weather. Um, we've got grab-and-go meals. Uh, so there there is some eating happening in the cafeteria. But where there were like 10 students at a table, there's like four, I think. And so, um, you know, modifications of, of the schedule. Uh, students, in terms of the way they're... Um, mixing that, you know, especially in our elementary and our primary uh, grades, you know, kids are in those cohorts and they're not leaving them. Um, I teach electives. So I teach both Spanish for fifth grade and then I also teach computers. And so the students are being kept in their homerooms. And so where there was in the past a lot more mixing with students in terms of their schedule, there's a lot less of that. Uh, kids come in every day. Uh, we've got a line of uh, staff, you know, taking temperatures, you know, kids, um, you know, getting the uh, hand sanitizer and, um, you know, reducing the numbers of kids in the bathrooms um, and all, all the desks are separated uh, socially distanced. And, you know, it's tough. It's tough to encourage kids in the hallways who are used to being able to just pal around and be together. Guys, we got to spread out. You know, we can't we can't be, you know, uh, gathering together like that. And, um, you know, athletics, uh, our, our daughter, Rachel, is playing volleyball as a, as a junior in high school. And so we're part of a mainly Texas-based athletic association called the uh, SBC, and they just decided on Friday to go ahead and cancel their season. That's going to free us up, actually, to play locally. And so they just had their first scrimmage tonight, actually. Um, they're not playing with masks when they're on the court, but in this case, the school where they were because of their rules required them to mask up when they were on the bench. And so anyway, just lots and lots of changes and modifications. And, you know, I think that our school is doing everything we possibly could. And so hopefully these precautions are going to be sufficient that we'll be able to stay open. And even though there are individuals who, you know, have to quarantine and, and people are, are positive and, and things like that, um, we're not actually though having students be live at the same in class officially it's happening in some cases where teachers are deciding to do it but that our policy is if they are learning at home which we call flex learning either short term because of quarantine or long term because they've chosen to do that and about 8% of our families decided to do that um they generally are getting recordings after the fact and they're a little bit behind where the the class is but i do know some teachers and i've helped some teachers who are doing some live streams on video conferencing and things like that and it's tough i mean it's really really yeah. hard to provide that inter- activity. Um, so, but you know, we are, 
flexing and I will just also say I'm I'm really enjoying not being in charge of technology at our school this year. Uh, I'm, I've enjoyed the academic uh, pivot and I'm getting to still do some coaching and, and help teachers and I'll probably have in the geek of the week our instructional support site, which we're continuing to you know, do a lot of videos, learn this last week, you can record a video straight into Google Classroom. So that's really cool um, on an iPad or an iPhone or or Android, any kind of phone or tablet. Um, there's all kinds of things that we're learning and it's a, a great time to be a connected educator as well, to be able to collaborate and get more information. Um, Peggy asked if folks have been had to quarantine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we had uh, a, a sizable number of students in one particular class last week uh, who had to go home and then being tested. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a number of people who have been required to quarantine. So it's here. I mean, you know, COVID is, is out there. Um, we were not all required as teachers to be tested going in. There's a, a teacher who's in our language department whose son is in Connecticut at a, at a college where, you know, they all had to test. And I think they're being tested twice a week, like everybody. And so that is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty stringent. And so there's a lot of variability in terms of what schools are requiring. But we've contracted with a company who can turn around tests pretty quick for us. But we haven't been required to test as teachers. And that's something that uh, I guess is being done as as required. Jason, do you want to pick up some more Google articles? You've got a couple other updates, a Maps one, I think, that you put in. Um, and then there's one that you have, I think, about uh, Cast Connect or would those have been mine? Oh, yeah. Forward. Um, yeah, hold on. I, I've somehow lost our links. <laughs> That's okay. I'll pick, I'll pick one up while you find those. Um, I've put an article from, for Google from Education. Uh, got this via email. Uh, this came out. They have put together a pretty awesome uh, PDF report called Future of the Classroom, Emerging Trends in K-12 Education Global Edition. Uh, you might kind of think about this a little bit like a Horizon report. The Horizon reports don't exist anymore, but um, it, they identify eight different emerging trends in K-12 education, uh, digital responsibility, computational thinking, collaborative classrooms, innovating pedagogy, life skills and workforce preparation, student-led learning, connecting guardians and schools and emerging technologies. Now, I will say, I think this is an interesting article in light of um, of the uh, of our keynote speaker that we had for the Mountain Moot. Uh, I was about to say Sundar Pichai, and it was not the CEO of Google. Uh, it was the outgoing uh, chief evangelist for Google. Jamie Cass. Uh, Jamie Cassup. Thank you so much. And I loved his keynote. In fact, maybe we, if I, that probably is archived on YouTube somewhere and that would be a good one if they've shared that out for people to check out. Um, he was let go by Google. And so you wonder, you know, anyway, you never know with personnel changes, all the details, but hopefully the, the commitment there in terms of education and evangelism, I can't imagine them having a better educational evangelist than Jamie, but um, this is uh, a, I think a good summary of some trends and um, anything you, you see missing there, Dr. Neifer, that would be a emerging trend in K-12 education. Well, it's interesting because the horizon report you mentioned doesn't come without controversy, right? Because, uh, uh, well, first of all, they, you know, they chose a panel, right? Did you ever serve on the, on the horizon report panel, Wes? Maybe I don't think yeah. so. I don't know. <laughs> hazy, hazy memories. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't think I did. A lot going on. Um, the <laughs> uh, the um, and it was interesting because there was always and I used to discuss these all the time with my um, edtech methods kids at the University of Montana because I w w the way we analyzed it was there was always there was always a, a clear trend that they very much picked up that probably wasn't in the mainstream, but then there was always one or two. Like it's almost it, that were clear misses that they 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 kind of bought into hype as opposed to you know real things. But you're taking a look at the list here. Um, first and foremost, uh, like the fact that they're focusing on on like like the the pedagogy, right? It's not just the technology; it's the pedagogy that actually is surprisingly missing from a lot of 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 kind of rhetoric regarding technology and then the thing that and and I know that I don't think we put the article in this week and I think we should save it for next week's and go into more detail um the life skills and workforce preparation which I think is great I mean I I don't diminish that as a focus but Google's been doing some bigger work here they announced last week a I think it's a certification based structure that they want to offer 
uh, younger students, uh, uh, you know, whenever they're ultimately ready for it in order to, um, uh, kind of get, get, you know, ready to go in regards to, um, uh, going to the workforce. But the way that, that article was, was, was covered in the tech media was that, that Google, and I, I kind of hate this, this term, uh, now in part because it's overused, it wants to, you know, quote unquote disrupt college. But there is a lot of interesting things, uh, going on, um, in regards to, you know, kind of Google thinking about how they play in the larger educational world. Absolutely. Um, let's see another Google article we've got in that section is from August 11th. I don't think we picked this one up. Uh, this is a Google for education blog post, uh, but it's called more details on what's coming to meet and classroom. And so they actually do have a timeline for those of us that have been waiting for these features, uh, coming in September, larger tiled views in meet of a seven by seven grid. So you can see 49 students at once. That's huge, uh, collaboration uh, with Jamboard to be integrated in terms of, of having that whiteboard. In October, you're going to have the option to blur or replace your backgrounds, which is great. Jason frequently does fancy things with his Windows PC there and his, um, his, his app that can modify his camera. Uh, attendance tracking. And then this one's the one I'm most excited about, breakout rooms. I have been using Zoom with my men's group at our church on Friday morning since we all had to go remote in March. Uh, it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. We usually have about 30 guys which actually they've gone back face to face last week, but we still have over half coming in on Zoom and breakout rooms are phenomenal. Um, I use those a lot this summer. I attended the uh, Summer Institute in Digital Literacy again last summer before last. I was able to go to Rhode Island for it this year. Of course, they went remote. Just great. I mean, we had sessions with with way over a 100 people, but then we'd be in a breakout room with four people and that opportunity to be able to connect and share and then go back to the large group. It's just absolutely fantastic. So I was really glad to see all of these details uh, coming from Google. And then they say later this year, not with a date, um, hand raising to help students um, to help you identify students who who need help. Um, you know, usually I just see my, would see my ask my kids to to wave their hand, and then a Q and A way for students to ask questions. I'll I'll note that they're basically playing catch up with Zoom. All right, and it's a little bit actually like iOS and Android because many features you know that we get excited about in iPhone world. You know, long time Android users like Jason kind of roll their eyes and go, yeah, and I've had that for the past year, you know, or, or for several years or something like that. Uh, Zoom really is fantastic in, in a lot of respects, but we're a yeah. Google school. Um, September 30th, I think, is the date where Google's enterprise tier, there's several tiers that you pay for, and <clears throat> they discontinue that being free. And really critical for us is the ability to record your your Google Meet. And so our school made the decision this summer to go ahead and pay for that license so teachers can continue um, of course, Meet is available for, for everybody, but to be able to record your Meets and then be able to share those with students and and have that archive, that's that's important. So anything there that's exciting to you, Jason, as a G Suite uh, admin of the uh, Academy and also just Google uh, evangelist? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they are adding a lot of features. The the 49 uh, person grid, I think, is huge for people that are trying to pull off large meetings or big remote classes with folks. Um, I, I will say I, I'm disappointed only because I think I would use this more, but they are taking a lot of those those advanced features that you pay for the, the, the advanced version of the G Suite for schools. And to be frank, it's because all of our teachers are part-time with us. It doesn't make sense for us to invest in that way, but we really hoped to actually utilize um, Google Meet as a webinar platform, and a lot of those recording and, and, and broadcasting features are part of that advanced tier that we're going to lose. I mean, the bottom line is, is I can do that with desktop software, uh, so it's not really necessary for us to do that, and to also be frank uh, with what I'm thinking about doing with that, um, I, I, are my in, organizations think about investing in StreamYard, which is what we use to broadcast, you know, EdTech Situation Room. It's such a great platform for that. But the thing that that is interesting to me is that you're starting, you look at Teams, you look at Zoom, you look at Meets. Um, and then in my mind, there's like a second tier of video conferencing tools that 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 I, I'm sure have increased in, in, in usage. But in schools, it's really 
Teams or, or Meets or, or Zoom, they're getting really close to feature parity. And um, that that's to be expected, right, in that, you know, I think both Teams and Meets were much lower function than Zoom when the, the, this whole mess started back in March and, and now have really, uh, I'm sure, rolled out features that were probably going to be part of everyone's strategy at some point, but but quickly rolled them out. And I think they're all becoming great experiences. And I do do have a couple meets on our couple meetings on meet every week. That's becoming a lot more functional than it was before. Meets is super great. And I happen to have access to, uh, you know, industrial enterprise zoom account because of my employment at the university of Montana. Honestly, if that went away, I could do a hundred percent what I do with meets or what I do with, with zoom, excuse me on meets. It's a great platform. So Marta, who is in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, uh, is, I think, still with us live. I would love to know, Marta, if there's anything you can share and chat about what your situation is like right now, school-wise, if you guys have gone back or, you know, what that looks like. Um, I will say on this Google Enterprise level, like, this is a big sea change for Google for Education, right? This is the first time ever when I'm aware we've had to say, oh, do we want to pay for that? You know, everything with G Suite all features, unlimited storage in the cloud. It's all free for schools. So there's, there's obviously been some, some changes in Google's education um, uh, offerings for schools. We know there's been some staffing changes with, with Jamie's departure. So um, I will say I'm, I'm disappointed because I think Google has that capacity to offer that to schools. I know that's got to be a ton of storage space, but hey, we are talking about Google here, the owners of YouTube. I mean, I don't know who has the most server farms in the world. I know Amazon's huge, but you know, Google has got to be up there. Um, I really do think that video conferencing in our COVID pandemic era has become a new normal, a new expectation. So using your email, using your learning management system, uh, I think using your online calendar, and then I think being able to video conference and both attend and host virtual meetings. These are things that that every uh, teacher and employee of an organization like a school needs to be able to do. So obviously Google I, you know, is seeing Zoom and its competitors not offer this perpetually for free. And so I guess they've seen that as a revenue stream, but it is a, that's a big departure. And I'll just say as a, a Google evangelist and somebody who loves Google for schools, uh, it is, it has been wonderful to be able to say, and it's all free. And we can't say that for, you know, these, these paid tiers right now. Yep, absolutely. And then one other quick note here, in part because I, I'm not sure if this has much impact on schools, uh, it be, and for something I'll talk about in a moment, but there's an article from Chrome Unboxed on August 13th where Robbie Payne notes that Google is probably going to change the way it does what we traditionally refer to as Chromecasting, right, which is the button that pops up on your Android or Apple phone that allows you to, to cast over something to a Chromecast device, likely in a television or projector or monitor. And I have to say, I like Chromecasting. Uh, it is tough to set up in an enterprise if you've ever had to do that as an IT person, or I've been kind of this, the, our small office IT guy, and you can set up some, you know, really rigged up stuff. But the bottom line is, it's, it's exceptionally difficult uh, to set up in, in any sort of enterprise network. But it, it, it is dominant in my home, right? I cast to my television quite a bit. I have a Chromecast device. But Google's been moving away from this a little bit and, in fact, has depreciated some of the hardware, and they appear to be going in another direction. And the reason why is because one of the challenges of Chromecasting is that once you cast it over, you have to use your phone to control the media, right? If you want to pause it, if you want to go backwards or forwards, um, or stop it, the only way to do that is on your phone. And I know some people do use their phones as kind of all-in-one remotes for everything. I just don't think it's all that natural to use a phone in that way. And I'm a guy that has a phone in his hand when he's when he's at a television. And so it appears what's happening is that Google is is moving away from this notion of kind of a dumb dongle that sits in your television that you can cast to, and instead will release Chromecast that actually have a miniature version of Android TV on there. That's their operating system for TV devices. And instead of like if you're if you're casting Netflix 
instead of casting it over and then your your dongle talks to the internet to get the the device, it instead will launch an app like Netflix, but then allow you to use a physical remote control to control the media. And it's a subtle change, but I I think that they may have found that the people are just ending up using a Roku or an Apple TV instead. It's a more elegant solution. It's more what people are used to in regards to remote controls. But it is it is a subtle difference. I'm assuming that you can still use the traditional casting means, right, which is to press the button and send that over. But it does appear that Google is shifting a bit its strategy here. One thing I'd love if people who are listening to this have more experience with is the the, the Google the Google Cast for Education. And there's an extension that has yes. been discontinued. So we've been playing with this because we now have uh, three of our four grade levels in our middle school with Chromebooks. And, um, you know, right now, and I know this because I was the tech director for four years and understand it at a little bit greater depth. Um, you know, part of the, the reason we can't cast student devices is they're not on our faculty Wi-Fi network. We have a yeah. separate network that's on the LAN and we segment students off and, and they're, they're, they're sandboxed and, and there's security reasons for that and whatever. But, but one of the, the things that we can't do right now is have students readily share their screen. And so I actually do have my Dell 11 Chromebook, which I do love, uh, in my classroom as a backup in case a student doesn't bring their device or something happens. But I have that on our faculty network. So that, and I'm using uh, AirServer, which is a great little piece of software, so that I can, uh, myself, if I want a demo or I can hand it to a student, uh, they can be casting the Chromebook straight to my my Mac, which is like a ser- series because I've got an Apple TV. So my my Mac is connected to my Apple TV. I'm running Air Server, and then that Chromebook streams and video does not play great through that scenario. But it's pretty snappy and it works well. And so anyway, this is an area I hope Google is going to invest in because you can manage in the enterprise Apple TV and the way that Bonjour and these technologies are working in the background. And you really can't, to my knowledge, with with Chromecast. And we've had teachers bring, you know, uh, Chromecast before and want to plug them in. And we've discouraged that uh, in large part because they're not manageable. And so these different devices that are created for a home uh, have behavior that can interfere and, and consume bandwidth in any way, be problematic. So we need enterprise manageable casting technology. And I think we've basically just seen Google focus on the consumer side. And I think it's real interesting that the remote control, it sounds like reading that article, it's a latency issue, right? You want to pick up the remote control and be able to immediately do something. And the way that the Chromecast works now, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. But I will say I love Chromecast as well. We have several. Uh, One of the things I love about it is the ambient screensaver. You know, I have a Flickr album now that has like over 800 pictures and they're all mountain pictures because we live in Oklahoma. So unlike Jason, who can walk outside and probably see some pretty impressive geography or certainly a little bit more relief physically than we can see here in Oklahoma city. We have to just look at a screen and it's fantastic to have that, you know, scrolling and changing. And we, it really, we enjoy that a whole lot. And the price point is key here, right? We, we have Google home minis, we have Chromecast. Yes, we have some Apple TVs, uh, only one new one though, right? Because, you know, we just, when you can pay, pay 30 bucks for a Chromecast and, you know, we have a phone, it's, I think Google has a winning strategy with that technology, but that's a long way of saying, from the educational lens, as we oftentimes will talk here, I don't think we see, which is ironic because of how big the Chromebook is in education, we don't see and haven't seen a commiserate focus and emphasis from Google on those kinds of casting technologies for the classroom. And so because that extension is being discontinued, I would suspect there's something else coming, but we haven't seen anything that I have, have been able to read about updates coming and if the Google had something in their pipeline, they probably would have included it in that blog post that we mentioned earlier and, and some other things. So any thoughts, Jason, on that as far as enterprise and casting? Have you seen anything about Google trying to move in that direction or improve? I have not, but I will say that if Google really wants to get the love of schools that are on Google platforms, uh, come up with a dongle that's school-focused that is easy to roll out in enterprise, and that will create 
a shocking amount of love in the world. I mean, I could see a scenario where, um, you know, it's, uh, it maybe it, it's just the standard, uh, uh, dongle that you're releasing that's Chromecast with this kind of scaled back version of Android TV. But if you could create something that's manageable by the, the console, right? The, the Google management console that you could roll out these TV based devices that have, you know, some, some functionality to them and maybe even roll out specific apps to each one of them. That would be a, a game changer. Absolutely. Well, well, I will tweet Sundar Pichai. I am sure he's a regular listener to the show, and especially after a tweet. Hey, you know, the, Google does listen. So, all right. Well, we're approaching the top of the hour. Let's do some quick hits on some more articles here. I want to uh, definitely deliver on the promise to Peggy to give her some some links to include. So really fast, I'm just going to hit a couple, and then, Jason, if you want to get, get a couple, and I think we'll have to wrap it up. Sure. Fast, fast Company, August 19th. Sex, Lies, and Video Games, Inside Roblox, War on Porn. This is one of those articles that if you read it as a parent, you may want to swear off Roblox for your kids forever. I think the good news is that the average kid playing Roblox is probably not experiencing this world, but as a sandbox world that gives users incredible power to create their own environments and things like that, um, not surprisingly, there is a real struggle going on between the owners and developers of Roblox and those who are wanting to have digital sex parties where kids act like adults, end quote. So put that in your internet safety queue. Uh, under the media literacy headline, I don't know if you've heard of the name Laura Loomer. I have a link to Laura Loomer's Wikipedia page. Uh, Wikipedia describes her as an American political activist, conspiracy theorist, and internet personality Pers uh, known for her far-right politics and commentary, she is the 2020 Republican nominee to represent Florida's 21st Congressional District in the United States House of Representatives. We have talked several times on the show um, about conspiracy theory, about um, uh, the uh, QAnon groups uh, specifically, a number of folks who have espoused uh, sort of some belief and faith in QAnon, which is an absolutely ridiculous uh, fringe, I would just call it Fruit Loop conspiracy theory. Uh, these folks have been elected to, or they've won primary elections in uh, the United States, and we very well could have elected representatives in the United States Congress who have publicly espoused belief and support of QAnon. That would be in addition to our chief executive, but I digress. Um, the other uh, link that's related to that is a nice Twitter thread from Andrew Morantz, who is talking about this and mentions Laura Loomer and uh, this is a, a pretty significant um, political development. And in the whole idea of disinformation and conspiracy theory, it is super important that we address this. I'm going to be doing some lessons with my students on conspiracy theory and why they have such a lure and how we need to be steering clear uh, and helping students and not just students, parents too, you know, identify the playbook of conspiracy theorists and be able to filter the, the chaff from the wheat, so to speak, or however you want to talk about being able to discern validity and credibility online. The New York Times has a great related article that was published on August 19th called Inside the Bugaloo, America's Extremely Online Extremists. Um, and it starts out, it started as an internet meme, the waves of political unrest gave adherents of the, bug, the boogaloo the chance to test their theories about the collapse of American society. And this is an article by Leah Sotel. Um, this discussion about the ways in which social media continues to be weaponized, disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation continue to flood our information landscape, polluting the landscape, and in some cases, making it extremely difficult for people to ascertain what is accurate, what is false, uh, the, the credibility and viability of the news. This threatens the foundations of our democratic form of government. And these are, if not existential challenges, these are huge challenges that we need to grapple with and that we in education are you know, positioned well to address and, and talk about. And so I think... Those resources are definitely worth checking out. And if you're not talking with your students about web literacy and about media literacy, please, you know, check out some resources that you'll find uh, from the News Literacy Project, um, from Mike Caulfield, his model SIFT for web literacy. There's some really, really excellent resources that are out there. And 
this is something that adults need as well. So, Jason, I'm sure Montana does not have anyone on the fringe at all running for politics or serving in elected office. Uh, I will not comment on that. But, um, yeah, this article is pretty fascinating. And, I mean, again, it goes to show you something we've talked about dozens of times you know, here is that, you know, the, the power of an all-accessible platform is that it's all-accessible. The problem with an all-accessible platform is that it's all-accessible, right? And I don't know how we find this balance. And my guess is, is, is that it'll be a long time before we figure that out. But these are the conversations that need to dominate where we're going with this stuff. All right. Any final articles you'd like to hit before Geeks of the Week? Yeah, just a quick note here that I'm sure we're going to hear more about this. I also put this under under tech correction. Fox Business on August 13th reported that San Francisco is finding itself in an interesting situation because, first of all, a lot of people can't pay their rent because of of, of uh, the pandemic. But then also people are leaving the city in droves as more tech startups and, and, and technology-driven businesses that do not require physical presence to complete business um, are allowing people to work at home. And so why stay in a $4,000 a month, you know, hundred square foot apartment when you could move hundreds or thousands of miles away to much cheaper rent and still be able to complete that job. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about the tech, tech correction here since about 2017, but the bottom line is, is the technology industry will be impacted by this uh, a broader pandemic um, in lots of ways. But, but, but something that's certainly true is that Silicon Valley may not be the hub anymore. It could be the central location of small central offices. But for better or for worse, a lot of people are going to end up um, you know, working remotely for a good percentage of their, their, their careers. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we are at the top of the hour, so I'll do some Geeks of the Week and then pass it to you, Dr. Neifer. Uh, my first one is the Asilomar principles, AI principles. Uh, these came from a conference that was held in uh, Asilomar, California in 2017. This speaks to the importance of of design ethics um, and, and developmental ethics in in. Uh, coding and, uh, you know, computer algorithm development, um, talking about the goals of research, the funding, um, the, the link between, uh, policy and, uh, science, the, uh, the culture that, that research has, and then, you know, safety values alignment. Um, what we're talking about here is the fear that Elon Musk and Bill Gates both have that we're going to see in the relative short term, I think we're talking certainly less than 50 years. I don't know, maybe 20, 30. I don't know how many <clears throat> where we're going to, we're going to have a point of um, artificial intelligence capacity uh, being able to surpass human cognitive capabilities. And we're going to potentially have a very dystopian situation. And what these folks who put together this, um, these design theories, and if you're, teaching anything about coding at all and really even about science. I mean, we need to include the conversation about ethics. So anyway, that was something new to me that came from a book uh, that I am currently reading um, called 2084 um, artificial intelligence, the future of humanity and the God question. I'm actually using that in a class I'm teaching for our church, uh, but lots of great things to talk about the impact of artificial intelligence and, and algorithms on society. Um, there's a great podcast called when media was for you and me. Uh, it is undivided attention episode 23. We have mentioned this before. There's a Stanford media professor, Fred Turner. This is one of the absolute best uh, media literacy podcasts that, that I've ever heard. There are so many great references here. I, I listened to the whole thing this week and I'll be listening to it again. And the Center for Humane Technology is Tristan Harris's uh, co-founded nonprofit, which is, we've talked about it before on the show, really looking at the ways that the information economy and the social media platforms specifically uh, are going to need some regulation and some change because what they are producing in our society is, is really toxic in a lot of ways. And then the very last one, because I'm oversharing again, this is from Joyce Valenza. Uh, this is a post from School Library Journal, the epic ebook of web tools and apps, a new crowdsource manual for back to school and beyond. And she posted this on August 9th. This is incredible. This is a ebook that uses book creator and a 
group of educators have got together, I think mainly over the summer, and put this together. And if you're looking for something that is going to just have tons of web tools organized and shared and a, a place where your teachers can go to, you know, be inspired, but also think about where different tools fit in terms of their function and purpose, this is phenomenal. And I highly recommend it. And pretty much anything Joyce Valenza says is awesome. And if you don't follow her on Twitter, you know, what have you been doing with yourself? Uh, do that immediately. Jason? I'm going to share something that I last shared on this podcast, November 2017. But since I've had this question two dozen times in the last week and a half, a lot of teachers are, are going home, working from home, teaching online courses for the first time. And your phone is really critical, but you don't want to give out your cell phone number to kids. Well, as it turns out, Google Voice still exists. I think it's one of the best tools under heralded tools from Google. Voice.google.com. You can set up a phone number that you can give directly out to kids that's not your phone number, and it will ring and provide a separate text message. Um, and for some reason, my personal phone is ringing right now. That's really odd. But um, uh, uh, that you can give out to kids without having to give your personal cell phone number. A little hint, uh, this is an old Android phone that I have around the house, right? There's no SIM card, and it. it's just on Wi-Fi. If you download the uh, uh, Google Voice and what's called the Hangouts, you can actually use this as a phone. Like you can answer calls from Google Voice on here and use it like a regular phone without needing to even use your personal cell phone. If you've got an old device sitting around, I recommend actually, especially if you're stuck at home right now, working remotely, or if you are a, a remote teacher for the first time, just put all your work stuff on the old phone, right? Including a, like a Google Voice number and your work email. And then at the end of the day, Turn your phone off, right? So that you can try to create some balance between your work life and your personal life. That is a great recommendation. All right. Well, Jason, where can folks find you when you are not here on the EdTech Situation Room and my internet is not, you know, it, you know, functioning as it is tonight and not down? Where, where else are you sharing these days? Um, I'm on the Twitter as Tech Savvy Teach, and I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education and blog.ncc.org and you kind, sir. I am W. Fryer on Twitter. I'm sharing my curriculum, which not only includes media and digital literacy this year, but also some Spanish lessons on mdtech.cassidy.org. And every once in a while, not nearly as often as I would like, I am posting things on my blog, speedofcreativity.org. I did actually update my westfriar.com site with a few links uh, where you can find things about media literacy and the show. You'll see Jason's photo pop right up there along with mine. Uh, and we want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thanks to Peggy and Marta, especially for joining us live in the chat room. We are here generally on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, wherever that happens to translate for your neck of the woods. You can find all our show notes on edtechsr.com slash links. And we do encourage you to uh, like us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Pocket Cast, wherever you happen to find your podcast. Uh, we appreciate you sharing our show, and we definitely appreciate any kind of feedback that you would want to share with us. And until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and uh, get your Google Voice hooked up. Great advice from the Yoda of Missoula, Jason Neifer. Good